Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You know what I want. <laughs> Not Samsung, Greg. Not Samsung. Not what? Not Samsung. Hey, that's pretty good. The Raptors defeat the Washington Wizards 132 to 102. My apologies to everybody. We just tried to start a podcast and the we had the micro microphone problems, but they're obviously better now. You're hearing it. Um, this was a game that went, I would say, according to plan in the easiest sense possible. It's a comfortable win for the Raptors where they haven't had very many comfortable wins. A lot of the wins that they've had this season come after coming back from like behind like 13, 15, 17 points, even as much as I think like what, 25 or 24 this season. And to have one kind of the length of the game after the opening stint, you find your way back into it. You beat a feckless, that's right, feckless Wizards team. They're now five and 25. The Raptors 12 and 18. 12 and 18 isn't good, but I tell you what, it's better than 11 and 19, unless you're team tank. But uh there's no way there's no sound again. You're, you you got to be trolling me at this point, man. That's so funny, though. That's a good joke. Um, a lineup change, which I thought was good. Uh, prior to the season, I wanted the Raptors to be putting Gary Trent Jr. in the lineup instead of Dennis Schroeder. I thought that Dennis Schroeder would be a super strong, like super, super strong bench guard, a change of pace guard, and somebody to help lead um, some of the Raptors bench players operate with a little bit more structure, run through, through some more routine things. And what happened in this game is that he swaps out for Gary Trent Jr. You get less Gary Trent Jr. on ball than you get with the bench. You get less than a shooter on ball than you get with the starting lineup. And what you end up getting is Pascal Siakam with 22 points and 11 assists. You get Scotty Barnes with 20 points, 8 assists, and 12 rebounds. You get OG Ananobi with 26 points, 2 assists, but he was just attacking gaps. And a lot of those gaps are a little bit more available and the spacing is a little bit better in this game because of the decision to put Gary Trent Jr. in the lineup. Now it is the 5-25 and 25 Wizards that this game doesn't provide answers for real. It doesn't dispel any worries for real. The Wizards aren't an impressive basketball team. I will tell you this much though. If the Raptors are starting to turn something, when Darko mentioned, you know, after last game, I don't have Steph Curry on the bench to just bring into the game, paraphrasing, of course. He didn't have that. But I think that this is a healthier configuration to elevate the Raptors' best players and also a configuration that means that some of the other players are put in a better position to succeed. This was a team that its best players are clearly their three wing players, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. They're playing a starting lineup and they're playing a style that doesn't necessarily reflect all of their best strengths. It doesn't necessarily reflect what they're good at and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't accentuate what they want to do on the floor. By going to this route, you put Gary in a position where he's more of a play finisher. That's going back to one of his strengths instead of asking him to create and be on ball more 
when he's part of the bench lineups. You bring Dennis Schroeder off the bench where he can play lesser players. He can beat guys with a first step more often. He's facing typically worse bigs. His you know pick and roll acumen stands out against bench players. His ability to get his own shot stands out and create for others stands out. Pascal Siakam with more spacing, good. Scotty Barnes with more spacing, good. Jakob Pertl operating in the middle of the paint with more spacing, good. All of this stuff was, to me, fairly obvious. NBA coaches and to many of the watchers, readers, listeners, right? This stuff seemed very obvious coming into the season. And I think a lot of people wanted the Gary in the starting lineup for these reasons. Not because Gary is the best thing since sliced bread, but because Gary, the the way they play, it accentuates what they want to do. And there's a lot of things that go into a NBA coach's decision-making process. And there's also egos. There's you know, argumentative stuff. There's decisions that, that have to be made. There's promises that are made in the offseason about roles going forward. And that's just how it is. You know, you get a game where finally they make that decision. It, it'll be nice to get it not against, let's say, the Wizards or the Pistons, which is the next game for the Raptors. To see it against a team of some consequence, they play a lot, like a lot of really tough games in January. If this starting lineup has the legs, if this configuration for the team is actually better, then that will bear out in January. But for now, we'll keep it on the game tonight. I thought uh, Coco says relational considerations. That's exactly it. Uh, relational considerations that I don't, even though I know the guys who are having their roles changed, even though, though I know the coach, not something I can even consider. And at that point, just from the outside looking in, it's conjecture. So. That's the word you used earlier in the day. Do you have any thoughts on this Raptors game just from uh, the outside looking in? Aleg watches a lot of Raptors games, but we want to know what he thinks about this one. Uh, uh, honestly, it was a very well played from start to finish. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was like a fun watch. I didn't really pay too much attention because the pizzas were just taking up most of my attention. But uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, I don't really have anything other than they were scoring very well, they had like a good uh, half court sets and like they're actually getting like easy shots off uh, feeding guys like Pirtle was doing really well. So I don't know. It's like, I think, are, you, are you thinking about the elbow alignment, the lob to OG? that you're Right, right. Exactly. Like those ones. And there's a few other like just fun plays that I saw. So I can't really say anything right now because I can't remember most of them. But like it was, it was good. I thought that they went to a lot of stuff that made sense for their um coco asks where the dog went um the dog is mister and he had to be taken for a walk uh, i think he'll be making an appearance later on in in the podcast and then peach is somewhere else as well but the raptors ran a lot of like really intuitive stuff tonight stuff we saw them run a lot of last season also with some of the twists that have become you know part and parcel of the darko rykovich approach which is a little bit more ball movement um, less isolation, but that doesn't mean that the Raptors aren't targeting mismatches. And in this game, they targeted a lot of them through Pascal Siakam. He is their best mismatch scorer. He is their best isolation scorer. Still, he's their best post-up scorer. Scotty's been the best player this season, but as far as like break a defense down, create an advantage, Pascal's been the best. He had heaps of those tonight. And a huge credit, and I mean this, a huge credit to Scotty Barnes, who in past seasons, obviously, has not been as potent from downtown to help pay off some of that creation. He goes 4 of 8 from downtown tonight. You just hope that Pascal can kind of get
get out of this three-point rut so that when Scotty has these big games of creation, when he's able to collapse the defense repeatedly, that Pascal above the break or in the corner, the same way that Scotty was able to hit some of those shots tonight, it doesn't have to be Scotty where he's like, what, 39% on super high volume. Even Pascal creeping back up to like 31, 32% over the course of this season would be pretty a pretty big deal. I That was probably my favorite part of the game was that the wings looked awesome. It's again, it's the Wizards. They're not a super impressive team. They're five and twenty-five. But being able to open up the floor for OG to attack gaps as a driver, for Scotty to push in transition continuously, to be somebody who in more space can obviously attack the glass a little bit more often, both as a driver and as an offensive rebounder. His size always pays off on both sides of the floor. And Pascal has more room to beat guys in space, to collapse, draw defenses open, and create looks, evidenced obviously by his 11 assists. And some of that is like guys making shots, but that can also just be creating excellent looks. Pascal, for all of the holes in his game, and most of them are attached to the three-point shot, of course, he can just break teams down, get into the paint, and create looks easier than a lot of guys in the NBA. And he creates really easy looks for his teammates. We saw that in spades in this game. And I love seeing that kind of stuff in spades. Um, the defense. Uh, or here's a good question from Coco. What percentage does Scotty need to shoot the three to positively impact spacing? He's shooting a good enough percentage right now. I think the what teams are looking for is that volume over time. Uh, teams like for Raptors fans who have been watching this game in and game out and seeing Scotty with another four for eight night tonight, which is great. I don't think any of them were the easiest looks in the world. He can hit it with a hand in his face. He's hit some off the bounce for three pointers this season, like all that kind of stuff. But the big thing is that teams just need to see more than like 29 games of it or 30 games of it. And he could be shooting 54% from three right now, which would be awesome. But that wouldn't make teams defend him differently. And I think also it's kind of like LeBron had that one year where he shot, what, 41% or 40% from three in Miami, and teams still had to play him for the drive because the prospect of Scotty Barnes and LeBron James getting downhill and into the paint, I think, is that um, obviously uh, you can foul them, they can dunk, they can finish at the rim, or they can create a laydown, a layup for a teammate, or they could possibly collapse the defense so much that they create an even better three-point look for someone else. Now, that obviously isn't that much on the Raptors because they don't have you know a, a dearth of uh, three-point shooters or anything like that. But the prospect of like guarding Scotty for a three-point shot instead of his drive isn't as simple as just being worried that he'll make them. I think teams are sufficiently worried that he'll make them. They have to be sufficiently worried about his points per possession, I guess, where like if Scotty starts shooting like 42% and up, teams actually have to start doing the calculations in the game plan of like, if this guy shoots this well, how do we make it? Like, what do we choose between running him off the line and having him come in like a, a bomb into the middle of our defense to blow up repeatedly, who always makes the right read as a passer, who can dunk over anybody, who isn't afraid to go to the line, are you worried? You're worried about point scoring. You're worried about foul trouble. You're worried about all of that. So I think that Scotty has to shoot such a ridiculous degree, not because people don't respect him as a shooter, but because he's so respected as a driver and a playmaker that he has to shoot it even better to make teams view that as like 
I don't know what's really going to happen. You know, um, KO Co asks, do I wholeheartedly believe Scotty will sustain 38% or better from three for the entire season? Or will he regress to the mean? I wouldn't be surprised if he sticks around 37, 38%. I'm going to be honest. Um, he He's always had, this was one of the first things I noticed when I was watching all of his possessions in his rookie season, that big piece I wrote. He has insane and uncanny touch. There's there's a guy who watches a lot of youth basketball. Um, a lot of scouts uh, label him as like the guy to pay attention to. His name is Mike Gribanov. And he's always held this belief that like, he pays close attention to guys who throw lobs at the end of quarters because he's interested in their ability to quickly identify where the basket is. And just like, when you throw the ball, can you get it in the vicinity of the rim? Is that an interesting indicator of future shooting ability? Like that kind of stuff. And Scotty being able to do like whirling dervishes over contests in the paint, all this kind of stuff, always center himself and like get the ball going towards the rim in the short mid-range I always thought was really impressive. And the fact that he is on the mark, even his misses look great. And he's really simplified the mechanics of his jumper and just letting his body like get the ball there because it is more of a push shot than like a feathery wrist shot than a lot of guys. But Scotty just has an uncanny ability to get the ball near the bucket. So I think there's some stuff going on with Scotty that he's, he simplified the mechanics. He has less points of failure in his jumper. Why couldn't it stay like this? His misses look good. His makes look better. He does it on high volume. He does it above the break. He doesn't have to be fed these easy corner threes, right? He can do it in basically anything. And he's hitting pull-up threes, not at a massive rate or anything like that, but he's taken small steps. Like he's taken massive steps as a shooter, but small steps as a pull-up shooter. All of the indicators to me, they say, yes, he can sustain this. Um, maybe I'm coming in a little bit hot, but I, I think he can definitely, you know, he can definitely do it. Ali Des says, dude on the left looks bored AF. Aleg, <laughs> this is uh this is my roommate, Aleg. Some of you guys have seen him on videos before, but also we're both back in Saskatoon. Anything you want to say? Um, I am having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm loving it. Yeah. I'm having fun. Nice. That makes it sound like a kidnap video, you yeah, know? It's like there's a guy right there with a little sign. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I bugged them to do the podcast because we've done this stuff before. But anyway, back to the game. Let's talk about the defense a little bit. So the defense struggled early on. And I think that the Raptors, they say you have a great smile, like, for what's right. He does have a great smile. He has a very warm presence. He, he's one of my favorite people in the whole world. But anyway, talking about the defense. The Raptors struggled initially, I think, because they didn't have the exact matchup that they wanted. And I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous for the Wizards to be a team that gives the Raptors a little bit of trouble defensively. But when we think about Daniel Gafford as a guy who can out jump and kind of like he can access places in the air that Jakob Pertl can't get to. I think Gafford knows like really is a he's so underrated as a big he can win that matchup in the front court on a good day. And Jordan Poole, even though he's only scoring like 18 points per game, even though he's having an underwhelming season, he is a quick, shifty guard who is the who is the Raptors' best matchup for that guy on the floor. Of course, it's it's Jordan Poole. Um, OG, God bless him, is one of the best defenders in the world. But even he can have trouble with quick, shifty guards sometimes. And so 
the Raptors, they struggled a little bit to hold things down at the point of attack. They collapsed on a lot of stuff. They gave up a lot of open threes. The Wizards hit a lot. But then the Raptors were able to, you know, turn up the defensive intensity a little bit as the game went on. The Wizards had, what, like a seven-minute stretch where they didn't score a single field goal. And the Raptors, they started to realize, like, okay, we can start icing pick and rolls. We can start funneling them into the middle of the court. We'll see if they're comfortable making shots from there. And they also started going zone. This is something that the Raptors will have to get used to if they want to play this new starting lineup because Gary Trent Jr. can't stick a lot of the best guards in the league. Um, neither can, like, OG Ananobi, it depends on the matchup, and he'll do his best, but it's you might be taking him off of a really good wing player. Um, that wasn't the case tonight, obviously. Kuzma, I like Kuzma, but he's not going to break apart your game plan. And then on top of that, uh, you also get, you can look at Miami Heat, I think, right? You have a lot of size on the wings. You have wing players who should be able to rebound better than average for their size and position, and especially when you look at Scotty. You have a big man in Jakob Pertl who should be able to hold down the middle of his zone. Maybe not as mobile as you want, but somebody who can do that. In this game tonight, you saw a lot of the tenets of that classic big wing zone that the Heat used to play. They don't play it as often. But they used to play that type of zone because they wanted to be able to minimize their amount of like chase on ball. They wanted to re rely more on their length than their foot speed. And the Raptors, we saw a lot of that tonight and successful stretches, which is to me incredibly important. Of course, it also, you know, it also helped. I think it helped that they were able to go to Dennis Schroeder lineups in the middle of the game. Schroeder, I thought, had an awesome game. Like, Four of six, like he shot 67% from the field. One of two uh, from three, he had nine points, 10 assists, four boards. He's a plus 29. They won his minutes. He played 29 minutes. They won him. One one win, one minute, one per minute. It was like he, he fit really well, and it really suited his game to go to the bench, I think. You know, Phoenix plays Z still uh, says they're on a string with that 2-3 regarding Miami. Yeah, Miami, uh, the 2-3 is a little bit different. Um, and yeah, with Bam at the top, like they, they've always had funky zones that they like uh, that they like to go to. And, and I love that Miami has been able to access that. Although zones are a little bit gimmicky, uh, the Raptors are a team that they, they have one of the worst backcourts in the NBA. They have to be gimmicky if they want to win a lot of games. And Maybe they won't be able to win a ton of games this year, but they're certainly, it seems like they're trying to. The roster decisions they've made so far seems that they're trying to. And uh, yeah, I think that the Raptors, there's potential here. But at the end of this game, we look at it and we say, they made, like they did a good job against these Wizards. They were able to see what the Wizards wanted to do offensively in this game. Then they had a defensive response that worked and worked really well. 102 points is not a lot for an NBA team these these days. 132 is. And the Raptors coming away from this one with like heaps and heaps of assists, 43 assists. Maybe that's their second most on the season. They didn't turn the ball over too much. They held the other team to like not very good shooting. After allowing some threes early on, they did a pretty good job of running them off the line, funneling them into the middle of the court making a lot of their attempts like with lower seconds on the shot clock with a bit more movement. They have to be a little bit more adventurous. All that kind of stuff is a big win. What we need to see next 
is the Raptors doing this, obviously, versus a, a good opponent? And we won't get that chance against the Detroit Pistons. Not close, not remotely. But you can't you can't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Uh, the Raptors, for the people who want them to win the game, well, they did. And so, uh, like the same way after they played Charlotte and they won, and I sat not here, um, we play the Celtics next. Oh yeah. They're, okay. So for everyone who was listening to me say the Pistons next, sorry. Yeah. The Celtics are before the Pistons. I think in my head, because the Celtics against the Pistons was coming up. Sorry. I had it confused. Anyway. Um, there you go. There's the team of consequence. Although the Raptors have played the Celtics very good. The one game this year, uh, they were super competitive in that in-season tournament game. Um, Carlo JS says, I like this kind of Raptors ball. Yeah. It's, this game was a lot more fun to watch than past games. Good offense is fun to watch. And the Raptors hit shots, and they had guys in more complementary positions to what like uh, what they're typically doing. It's it's been it's been tough for the Raptors this season. You know, it, it hasn't been easy basketball. It hasn't been pretty basketball. I kind of I talked to my uncle a lot this Christmas, and he loves basketball, and he tries to keep up with my work and be supportive and all that kind of stuff. But we we had a lot of laughs about. You know, like the Raptors are not a good watch this year. Sometimes, like my uncle has been following my work for forever. There's been seasons he's loved to tune in and hear me explain some stuff about basketball that maybe he didn't know that it makes watching more fun. But he says he'd rather listen to the podcast than watch the game, you know, because it's like not that I'm a better entertainment product just for family members, obviously. But it's just like the Raptors have been a tough watch. So to see this. These types of games, it's been good. Simon says, didn't they lose by 20-something in October to the Celtics? They did. They lost in early November by a bunch. But what I was talking about was the in-season tournament game. They played them really well. And the Celtics made a really weird defensive adjustment. They started playing Kristaps Porzingis a lot higher. And Precious had an awesome game against the Celtics that game. And Pascal, through the post, completely dominated the Celtics too. Whether it was like Derek White or Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, nobody had a solve for Pascal out of the post. And the Raptors' defense, they had a pretty strong defensive game. Obviously, they didn't end up winning, and the Celtics are one of the best teams in the league year in and year out. They have a ton, and I mean a ton of talent. And a t like they play to their system, whether it was Ime Adoka or Joe Mazzula, they've been able to play like good defensive basketball with a lot of offensive firepower. That's that's the way they play, man. And it's been even more so this season because they've gone fully into 5-0 basketball with Kristaps Porzingis. And the Raptors, they'll definitely, we'll get to see it. I don't know how often, I don't know how often the Raptors are going to be able to go to zone against the Celtics, considering, or maybe they try and run like a 3-2 and really disrespect Kristaps Porzingis. There's a possibility of that. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in any, game plan that makes Porzingis be like the top shot maker against the Celtics. That might be something they try, but they'll probably have to play mostly man. And they'll probably try to do a lot of like uh, liberal switching onto Chris Stapps and scram switching off of him and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's interesting. Phoenix plays Z says my issue with your best player being a post hub is stupidly static, easy to load up on only if you don't have shooters, you know, like a lot of the best offenses operate out of, the high post as a hub or the low post as a hub, it gives you a lot of opportunities to make, to play make and to make defenses guard in ways that they're not typically used to. And especially guards, guards have a lot of trouble with their post automatics, the things that they have to 
fall back on as their baseline defensive approach and the decisions they make when they're guarding a lot of post actions, a lot of those downhill stuff off ball. And there's opportunity there, but the Raptors, like they don't have all the offensive talent to accentuate Scotty that, that, you know, you want to eventually, they don't have all of it to do it with Pascal eventually. And like, truthfully, whatever Scotty ends up being in the future, and it looks like an all NBA player, of course, um, you'll want him paired with a, like a dynamite guard at the very least, right? Who can break down the defense, shoot off the dribble, get into the paint, finish, like all that great stuff. The the makings of a true championship hub. And Pascal, he didn't get to like nobody, you know, nobody looked at Pascal and said that's a finals MVP. Nobody said, I want to take that guy over like seven or eight other players in the league. Nobody, I don't think anybody really said that. And Basically, no teams get to decide that they get a number one player w- worth winning a championship with, right? Like the Raptors, they got it when they could. They they struck when the iron was hot with Kawhi Leonard. But most teams are at a point where they have to build around somebody. They have to design an offense around somebody. And you des- design the offense around the best players you have. And Pascal Siakam was like undoubtedly the best player and you build around his skill sets until you can get a player who displaces Pascal as the best player, then you build around his skill sets. Or going forward, who knows what happens at the trade deadline, you trade Pascal to better surround, you know, a Scotty first team. And then if a player like a guard ends up being a better offensive hub than Scotty, then it's that team. The Raptors even had this happen last season, right? Like the Fred Van Vliet plus Jakob Pertl pick and roll was the largest focus of their offense post-trade deadline. That's what the offense was built around. It was built around Jakob's ability to draw tags or finish on the roll. You draw the tag, Fred is going to make a live dribble read to the corner. The defense is in rotation. You start making plays from that point. Nobody tags. You try and get the little pocket pass to Jakob to roll all the way to the rim. If the help comes after he catches the pass, maybe it's the opposite corner that's open. You start playing from advantage. But every team has something that they go to first to get an advantage. And the Raptors, what they go to first to get an advantage, I think this season is the Pascal post-up. And I still think that's their best look that they have on the roster at any point in time. But you're right that it's not the best thing to do always. And the Raptors don't have a, you know, uh, a roster designed to be dominant offensively, but you have to build around what's there. Um, The Raptors can't ignore the skill sets on the roster, neither can Darko. You have to try and play cohesive winning basketball when you can. And especially when you probably don't have your first round pick because the Raptors, while not very good this year, are not so destitute that they'll be in compete. Like, I don't think they can compete for a bottom six pick in the draft. Well, top six, you, you guys get what I mean. It's tough to build teams in the NBA and to build good offense and to build, like collect all the skill sets you want to do and to have, you know, to actually organize all those types of things. I'm not giving Messiah pass. I think the past few years have been really bad from a team building point of view. I think the front office has had some gaffes as far as decisions they've made to make trades, as far as decisions they've made on signings and as far as decisions they've made in the draft. But, you know, it's it's kind of tough, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, Anu G says they were seventh before this game. I, yeah, I understand that. But the teams that are below them are so bad. Like, it's not like a close seventh. 
you know, it's like, it's, it's tough to be as bad as some of the worst teams in the, in the NBA. Cause you know, the Raptors just played the wizards who are five and 25 now. And that's a bad, bad team. Um, some things I really like from the offense in this game. We talked a decent amount about the defense. We talked a little bit about the offense, but um, just to reiterate that same point is that I think it was really meaningful because we only said it in passing that OG Ananobi has big driving gaps available to him to make plays in. He's always been talented at being able to put the ball down when there's a straight line drive available to him. He's always been a super talented finisher by the percentages because he dunks such a high percentage of his shots. That's a good thing. That's a win. And as far as, as far as like the laydowns, I think he does a good job of spying guys, making like making that circle cut at on the the dunker spot, or making that baseline cut or the forty five cut in alongside him. All that kind of stuff, he can make plays as a playmaker to do that. And to see next to Gary, there's a little bit more room for him to try that stuff out. I think is like a really good thing. Um, OG obviously with this team has been looking for opportunities to take his efficient offense to a little bit higher usage. And this starting lineup, while it obviously allows both Scotty and Pascal more avenues to be, uh, let's say, more effective playmakers, I I think it also allows uh, OG's driving to shine a little bit more often. Um, Precious Achua, for anybody who wants to hear about Precious Achua, there's only 10 minutes, you know, of Precious in this game. And I did think it was funny. This like this wasn't Precious's game. Um, Darko mentioned that if they make the lineup change, that it might end up disaffecting some guys. He made the lineup change, and the top bench player was obviously Dennis, but then it goes Jalen McDaniels, who, you know, he was a plus 11, but he's also two for seven from the field. I don't think he should... I don't really think he should ever be like one of the highest minute players off the bench. I don't think that makes much sense. But obviously, once the starting lineup was changed, Darko, the rest of the lineup was completely in flux. Like Otto Porter Jr. played more than Chris Boucher. Otto Porter Jr. played more than Precious. And the it seemed to me that since Dennis left the lineup, Gary comes in, that from the bench, Darko was looking for more wing supplementary stuff and that's obviously why he leaned into it the way he did and that ends up kind of you know you get precious Achua not playing as often in this game which to me is disappointing and on top of that like five minutes of it was nuts precious played like a madman at the end of the game it was like a really funny performance you could see you know there's always memes about players who take a lot of the ball and try and do a lot with the ball and it's like whether it's like it's Jordan Poole time, it's Kobe time, it's Precious time, whatever it is, you can see like they have a will to dominate, like Sauron or something like that. You know, poured all their malice into the ball. And uh, Precious, definitely that was a big thing at the end of the game. He was running dudes over. He was getting stripped in the backcourt. He was going crazy. But he also early in the game had a keeper play on a dribble handoff, one dribble into a mid-range pull-up, and he cashed it, which that's pretty good. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of funny. Um, Anu G brings up that Grady was below Jalen McDaniels in the depth chart. Yeah. Grady came in for a little smidge smidgen of the game. He had a, a back cut and then caught the pass, had an end one dunk. I think that's just the first end one dunk 
of his career. I can't remember. He's had a dunk because he caught a lob, but uh, nice little play. We're still waiting on the jumper to come around. Obviously, that's been the super big thing for Grady. And I had this tweet because I thought it was interesting because Corey Kispert, you know, Raptors fans will always identify more with data from players who um, who do well against the team. And I think Corey Kispert is a nice young player in the NBA. So Corey Kispert in his first 22 games as an NBA player came out of Gonzaga, was a really strong shooter, drafted at the either just outside the of the lottery or at the back end of it, but he shot 20% from three in his first 22 games as an NBA player. That's a larger sample size than Grady currently has. And he shot 39% on like the 150 games since on really, really strong um, volume. So uh, because white shooters always get compared to white shooters, um, Corey's a better athlete than Grady, but I think Grady is a better connective player and a better rebounder than Corey, at least. I think that there's evidence for a really good shooter to have this weird start to their, you know, career as a shooter and then to turn it around. Grady has such a long track record, not as a pro, but he has as good a track record as you could reasonably expect coming out of the draft. He has a ton of volume at high school that was tracked, hand-tracked. He has a ton of volume at college that was tracked, hand-tracked. And he made like a, a very diverse range of threes. He hit them from the college level and he hit them from the NBA level at college. Like his resume as a three point shooter is quite vast. And so for his three point shots, just not to fall in is like odd. And it's not anything that you can explain uh, myself, the rest of the media members, everybody's taking a crack at looking and diving into the numbers, trying to find something. Everybody has talked to Grady about it. And whether Grady knows what's wrong, what the tweak is or anything, he's definitely not saying it to anybody. I haven't heard anything leak come out. And um, yeah, so Grady, the shot has to come around. If the shot comes around, then a lot of the other stuff, I think, starts looking really good. Um, ND brings up that Grady's shooting 19% on wide open threes. Grady also shot better on guarded threes in college. I think he, I think he shot like 41% on guarded threes, and it might have been like 33 or 34% on unguarded. I can't remember. I it's been a long time since I looked at his synergy table, but it's always been a little bit of an oddity for him. I just you just have to hope that the jump shot comes around because everything is viable for him. The playmaking stuff, the rebounding, a lot of the off-ball cutting that is so good, his movement, all that stuff looks really good next to a jumper, but if he can't hit the jumper, it kind of all looks dumb. Like you can't do anything. You can't make an impact on the floor. He's only like he just turned 20 small body at this point in time for the NBA. He has to fill out. And these things would have been easy to overlook, of course, as like he's a guy who has to grow if he just hit his jumpers. He hasn't been. And that's why, you know, Phoenix Play Z says it right here. You should hit your wide open threes. Yes, of course you should. Um, I'm not listing any of this as a pro or a con. This is just the the context for the listener to make their decisions, you know, Um but Grady, what's happened with his jumper has been odd. And that oddity means that, of course, he's playing behind Jalen McDaniels. But also on top of that, and this I think I stressed before the season, if you as a team are banking on any rookie to give you winning minutes, you're going against historical precedent. That's like, that's just plain and simple. That's what it is. Even if it's against the Wizards, if it's against the Celtics, whoever it's against, Rookies typically don't win minutes. That's not a, a strong suit for them. 
and they have holes in their game that they don't even know about that the front office doesn't know about that the coaching staff doesn't know about until the other team figures them out and there's a bunch of stuff that like has to happen with that kind of stuff um i feel like that's a podcast yeah we talked we talked a, a decent amount of basketball i know the these ones have been a little bit shorter obviously but i'm at home Nobody wants to watch like an hour of me talking when it's like this time of year. Everyone has better things to do, probably. I'm just a schmuck. That's how this works. Um, I'm glad for everybody who joined in. I'm sorry we couldn't show you more of Mr. or Peach, the two precious animals, um, the dog and the cat. My apologies, but I think a leg has whisked them away somewhere. So, uh, and yeah, they said you had a great smile. They also said you had a really nice coat. They said you had a good fashion sense. He's coming over here to show off the <laughs> wait do you want to say anything to anybody good pod and good game okay nice <laughs> excellent um yeah that feels like it um and you got a bonsai tree um wait that's not a bonsai tree is it oh wait this is okay anyway you got a you got a tree um compliment malcolm anyway thanks to everybody for tuning in um yeah, I don't, I don't really think I have anything else to say about that game. We'll have a lot to talk about after the Celtics game, though, because that one should be very, very interesting. Um, miseducation of Warren Hill. Nice. Yeah, um, there's Miseducation of Warren Hill. We have Hugo Montenegro. We have Cat Stevens, and we have Amy Winehouse. And then there's a couple more there. But these, this is, uh, yeah, the collection of uh, uh, records, etc. Okay, that feels like a, a podcast for the algorithm. If anybody wants to hit the like button, it helps out the podcast. It's free for myself, supporting the work, all that kind of stuff. Um, go to raptorsrepublic.com. And if you have the means, feel free to subscribe. All that good stuff. And mostly just thanks to everybody for tuning in. I hope your holiday season has been awesome. And at least the Raptors delivered a win for this one. Okay, that feels like it. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, you guys are the best. And we will see you. Bye-bye. All right.